Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are around the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And you won't be surprised to hear this as ever. We've got a lot to cram in in our time together. Uh, This is what we'll be doing if it's okay with all of you. Uh, My reflection, you can guess what it's going to be, the strikes. I'm going to do it from a particular perspective. Um, And by the time you've heard this, the story might have moved. On one level, it's a fast-moving story. On another, it doesn't be moving very fast at all. But anyway, uh, whatever. I will be making some timeless reflections. Um, And before that, a couple of assembly notices uh, and some amazing questions from you all. Well, not all of you, because we'll be here for months, uh, but uh, some great ones. Um, So that's what we're going to do. Yeah, the assembly notices, uh, Edinburgh Festival is getting closer. And it's quite exciting, really. It had not really happened for the last two years. Certainly, I haven't been there. Um, But Rock and Roll Politics will be live at the Edinburgh Festival every day from Monday, August the 15th. And the tickets are on sale at the Edinburgh Fringe website. I'm at um, the Symposium Hall, uh, the Symposium Hall Amphitheatre. And if you've been there before, uh, it's the same place. (laughs) Uh, I'm returning to the same place. Great theatre. 11 o'clock every day from August the 15th. Different shows every day. I'll tell you more about them uh, nearer the time. So you can start the day with rock and roll politics at the Edinburgh Festival. Thank you, those who have uh, subscribed to Patreon recently. The latest bonus podcast is the relationship between prime ministers and special advisors. The first one, uh, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, uh, which shines much light on the current turmoil. Um, And the next one to come, which is kind of really cinematic in its kind of ghostly, enigmatic mystery, is the relationship between Harold Wilson and Marcia Williams. Um, So if you sign up to Patreon, you'll be getting that at the beginning of July. Uh, But before all of that, um, oh God, this is so depressing, this uh, dispute in the railways. Uh, We've talked about inflation on this podcast. And in terms of the fractured railways, which is um, an absolute part of this drama and crisis, as much as inflation actually, um, is, is the fracturing of the railways. So this question that is fundamental to the delivery of public services, who's in charge? There is not a clear answer. Um, I mentioned in that uh, controversial uh, Jubilee special podcast about the uh, juxtaposition of all these Union Jack Flacks uh, at the end of a walk I'd done ending up in Deal and these people all with their Union Jack hats on and all the trains were cancelled. Um, and it wasn't a clear at all. They were all female, oh, bloody trains in the Union Jacks. Um, and it wasn't, a, who did you go to? There was no staff there. It wasn't clear whether it was a problem with the track, whether it was the train company, who's in charge. And these strikes, and who knows, by the time you hear this, it might have all been miraculously resolved. Um, But as I speak, uh, that is not the situation. Instead, 
what you have is kind of emblematic in uh, public services in the UK. Who's in charge of negotiating uh, and resolving this crisis? Uh, and here is a really interesting dimension. The government say they are emphatically nothing to do with it. You have cabinet minister after cabinet minister saying this. It's up to the uh, rail companies, network rail or whatever, uh, to conduct the negotiation, uh, not them. Now, this is uh, surreal and absurd because the government is responsible, in inverted commas, uh, in many ways. First of all, if you regard public transport as you must, as an essential service, however that's defined, government has responsibility. You wouldn't, for example, uh, uh, with uh, defence, uh, you wouldn't have John, uh, nothing to do with me, uh, what, uh, whether we supply arms to Ukraine, uh, 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 the army's in charge of all of that. Um, there are direct lines of accountability between an elected prime minister and what the army does. Um, this is apparently not the case with the railways. Of course, the government has responsibility uh, to make sure people can get around or else the economy suffers and people suffer appallingly. But this ideology um, is, it has become so embedded in um, conservative governments that they um, aren't responsible, that this is a factor in the chaos of this crisis and the provision of public services. Um, because if you think about it, if, they, if people can't get anywhere and they say, oh, nothing to do with us, it doesn't make sense. Of course it is. Um, now, it's partly political. Uh, they want uh, Labour to get the blame. So if they sort of say, look, you know, we, we, we're against the strikes um, and we're not going to get involved in the negotiation, it's a partly a political thing. And that Linton-Crosby device of causing uh, turmoil and division uh, is being used in this case. But it is ideological in a very confused and bewildered way. Um, when I've heard kind of ministers saying, you know, uh, we can't get involved in this, um, I, I think about their responsibility to get involved. But also, uh, just on a practical point, we uh, spend a lot of money uh, on the railways. Um, we should spend more, actually, uh, because if you see it in terms of a public service that could actually drive economic growth, you will see the money the state spends on the railways as an investment and not a burden. Uh, but in Britain, it has always been seen the other way around. Oh, the money we've got to spend, oh, it's all a burden. Uh, but anyway, we still do spend a lot. And as Grant Shapps has rightly pointed out, billions uh, during the pandemic. So on that basis alone, a government cannot be detached. Their money, taxpayers' money, is – oh, I don't like that phrase, taxpayers' money, because, um, again, it kind of implies the whole thing's a bloody burden. But it is – you know, our money is involved uh, in the railway. So, of course, the government is an agent. And anyway, the government sets the perimeters of what is possible. 
um, by deciding how much it's going to spend and the precise responsibilities of the um, various multi-agencies in the fractured model of transport provision that Britain has chosen and no other country in the world has followed up and said, oh, yeah, that's brilliant. We should do the same. No one. Um, so it is when our money is involved, of course, the government uh, has a responsibility uh, to get involved and is looking on uh, w w with this sort of apparent lofty distance. It reminds me uh, in the long and distant past of the coalition era. Their first, do you remember the NHS white paper that the then health secretary, Andrew Lansley, uh, produced? Uh, a, a paper much longer than War and Peace, um, which apparently surprised David Cameron, even though he had encouraged Andrew Lansley to pursue the path uh, that was um, reached in that white paper. And at the um, very top of the original white paper, uh, uh, it said that the government was no longer going to be directly responsible for the uh, delivery of uh, the NHS. Uh, other agencies were going to take over in a fantasy world which was going to empower patients and so on. And, and Cameron made big, worthy speeches about how it wouldn't be right for a prime minister to get involved in the provision or the responsibility of particular hospitals. Now, within about 10 minutes, uh, that kind of assertion of uh, theoretical distance collapsed um, because all the money to go towards the NHS is decided by the Treasury and it is a huge public spending commitment. So, of course, any government has a responsibility and an interest to uh, see how that money is being spent. And so that distance didn't last very long at all. In fact, it was very vividly broken when, do you remember, there was that uh, inquiry into the Midstaff's Hospital where appalling things had happened. Um, and this was one hospital. And David Cameron made the statement on uh, the outcome of the inquiry into Midstaff's and what should happen next. Cameron, the Prime Minister, showing direct responsibility for what was going to happen in one hospital, the precise opposite of the whole philosophical underpinning of Andrew Lansley's white paper, but actually the wider reforms that were implemented chaotically by the coalition, which are now being undone um, in the next phase of reforms. That's my phone going. I'm being texted by Andrew Lansley says, Steve, you're talking bollocks. Um, by the way, I don't br I blame Andrew Lansley. Um, he was absolutely following uh, Cameron's guidance as to how public services should be reformed. But it didn't work because governments are part of the um, provision of public services inevitably when they're deciding how much is to be spent and invested on them and the regulatory framework. So here you have it again. So anyway, the government, of course, is involved and will get involved um, while pretending not to. So who's in charge if they're not? And then again, we enter the jungle of the fractured railway system. Uh, network rail, 
uh, it seems to me, are proposing some quite sensible efficiency reforms. Uh, if the unions set themselves against efficiency uh, implementation when it is safe and recognisably feasible, um, they are heading for a kind of doom uh, because they will be in effect saying, look, we, we want these people to be employed even if you can do it with a third of the people. Uh, we still want all, all the, the staff to be there. The, the union should be looking at how uh, a modern railway network should work efficiently as much as the network rail and all the other various agencies. But that, of course, is not the only thing going on. The rail operating companies um, are involved in terms of pay and conditions. And so it's a mess. Who, in the end, decides what form a compromise can take when so many of these agencies are involved? And it is a reminder of the importance of ownership as a political theme. Um, this, like Brexit, is taboo for uh, Labour. Uh, its timidity is such that it kind of, uh, certainly at the leadership level, uh, says ownership really isn't an issue. Of course it's an issue. Uh, the privatisation of the railways has led to a fracturing that is deeply inefficient, but also it means that any policy development is only implemented chaotically because no one is clearly in charge and responsible. Um, and so even once we're through, and it's quite hard to see how we're through unless you're listening to this and the whole thing's been resolved, through this current uh, range of disputes on the railways. And it is a range, and it's a complicated range of issues. Um, what follows will be more chaos. So the government um, recognising that there has been too great a fracturing of um, the provision of these kind of vital services is going to set up this, what's it called, Great British Railways or Great Britain railways or great. Um, but that in itself is a deceptive title because in Scotland, there's a separate structure. In Wales, there's a separate structure. In Northern Ireland, there's a separate structure. And it's also hard because this government is so wary of anything that smacks of uh, state control. You know, oh, return of the 70s. Oh, oh, oh. Um, that. Um, Although there will be this great British railways, the precise structure of who is responsible for what will remain fairly blurred. Um, and so even when you're not facing the prospects of total chaos, there is the sort of ongoing daily chaos, you know, 60 price options. And then do you remember there was that phase uh, where the rail operating companies would say, oh, yeah, great. We recognize now with um, after the pandemic that season tickets, people might not want to go in every day. So we'll do shorter weekly season tickets for a few days or, or whatever. Uh, but then it, it kind of emerged the costs were as astronomical as ever and the ticket prices are ridiculously high. And it's really interesting that a popular slogan in politics at the moment is on your side. Labour have used it. The government has used it. We are on your side, on the side of voters. 
But as you navigate the chaos of Britain's public transport system, um, you know, trains cancelled without explanation, um, you know, different system in different parts of the country, different train operators with different uh, kind of uh, operating characteristics, um, a lack of coordination, uh, privatised uh, buses uh, which were uh, lightly regulated in the 1980s, so they you know have every right not to turn up very often. Um, you do not feel uh, that this public provision is on your side. You feel that you have to take a deep breath, spend a fortune, and then hope it all goes to plan. And when it does, it's bliss. And you just think, oh, this is such a great way of getting around this country. And it should be easy to get around this country. It's not a huge country, you know, like um, uh, France and we, we should be able to pull this one off. But because this ethos of being on your side is so not part in reality of the culture of Britain since the early 80s, it's, um, it's so bloody difficult. Um, and, uh, you know, I was reading the other day in Germany that um, uh, in order to attract people back onto public transport, they're offering these really good value season tickets where you can use any train. And I, I kind of I think it was about 100 euros or something. You can go anywhere in Germany on these trains if you buy these season tickets. And people who do it feel as if those who have initiated this are on their side working with them. And it makes such economic sense. I think leveling up is a fantasy until you have modern transport. And that, in a way, is the challenge, I think, for uh, labor as well. Um, you know, the kind of defensive tentativeness over this um, is partly understandable because it's tricky for them. They want to be on the side of both. They want to be on the side of those whose lives have been completely disrupted by these strikes, uh, but also for those uh, struggling to keep up with the cost of living and feel the need to strike. And it's, it's a big call. It's a big call. They don't get paid on the days they strike. Um, so they are equivocating defensively. Um, and on one level, that's understandable. But on another, too much about Labour is defensive, as if they are so terrified to move into the other person's half. I've mentioned ownership. Um, it doesn't have to be the 29 manifesto where there's a sort of costly uh, attempt at state ownership across everything. Um, but to put the case that some of these privatizations haven't worked and that the government will seek a more publicly owned, coordinated, efficiently modern run uh, setup uh, is, is, I think, you know, part of an argument that should be had and could be won. Um, now, they had a quite sensible thing, I think, in uh, both Miliband's era and the Corbyn era, that you would um, only when the private contracts have come up would you consider uh, owner, state ownership, which incidentally has happened anyway because some train companies just couldn't afford to carry on. Um, and, and that seems to me should be part of a much more exciting vision for public transport. Um, 
And then you kind of, instead of these parochial disputes, you kind of think, so those who run the best public transport systems, um, what do their drivers get paid? What do their lower paid workers get paid? Um, and, and, and do international comparisons and, and, and work out how best people can be deployed and, and, and deal with the issue of whether it can be done with fewer people a good top-class service. The only time I felt that this was happening in Britain was, um, and it's a real model for delivery, I think, uh, when uh, Ken Livingston was made London mayor. And of course, then, you know, the new Labour leadership, um, who, who, by the way, there's a sort of uh, retrospective view of uh, their great boldness, Tony Blair's favourite word, at our best, when at our boldest, they were so scared of uh, the congestion charge that Livingston introduced, but it raised money for public transport. But the more interesting thing is uh, what he did with the underground. He got the best people. He recognised that Britain had become had done so little with infrastructure uh, and the provision of public services for decades. You know, the 70s, all the cuts, IMF imposed cuts, then the Thatcherism of the 80s and so on. So so Britain really just was not used to managing good public services. So in terms of the underground, he got in people from the United States, from New York, who had transformed the subway there um, to sort out the underground. Um, and he was the one directly accountable if the congestion charge had failed um, and he had failed to put in more buses and improve the uh, underground, uh, he would have been voted out. The opposite happened. That cautious new Labour leadership ended up endorsing Livingston, having disowned him. And it's a good model. Clear lines of accountability, getting the best people from around the world to sort it out. Um, and uh, raising money to do so through something like the congestion charge. Um, actually, I think the congestion charge went more on buses, but one way or another, transport in London was massively improved, and if it hadn't been, Livingston wouldn't have been elected for a second term. And um, I, I, I kind of think that's a model that should be applied more widely, but is in marked contrast to now. Who's in control of the railways? Not the ministers, apparently, although they sort of are, as I've explained. Network rail, train operators, if so, all the train operators, or are they in control separately of their respective uh, train companies and the routes that they run? Um, there are a whole host of other agencies. And then, as I say, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. It's interesting, uh, the transport specialist, friend of mine, I was running with him last Wednesday, and we were talking about this, uh, Christian Walmart. He's just written a book about British rail. Um, and I've only just started reading it, but I know the thesis um, that it has become mythologized British rail as a complete basket case. And the mythology uh, prevents serious, grown-up, sophisticated discussion on how we sort out the railways. Because if anyone ever talks about uh, a, a national coordinated uh, railway publicly owned for the public, um, uh, oh, back to the 70s, oh, British rail, soggy sandwiches and all the rest of it. Now, no one should follow a counter mythology that British rail was a perfect working model. It wasn't. 
Um, and there were certainly many bloody disruptive strikes uh, in the era of British Rail, um, and it could be unreliable. However, less public money uh, was spent uh, on British Rail than at times has been the case since the privatization of the railways. Uh, it was more affordable, and at times there was quite sort of modernizing initiatives uh, with the trains. Um, and they are, and, and so Christian demythologizes uh, British Rail in a way I think just clears the ground a bit for looking at how a modern transport system could be run in Britain. Um, now that doesn't mean British Rail is the model, um, and there are many others. You know, Germany, France, and others um, have other models. But as I say, no one anywhere has um, followed our model, which has gone through, it's a bit like Brexit, it's gone through many different iterations, you know, do you remember the first one with rail track and all the rest? And by the way, John Major only did the privatisation to appease the right of his party who were raging about Maastricht and he wanted to show he was a Thatcherite in, 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 in this field and oh God, the chaos. Um, and, and what command that group of politicians in that Tory parliamentary party have um, wielded from the early 1990s to this uh, very day. Anyway, there we are. Uh, we, I, I, we've got to sort out this fracturing of uh, public services. And always the giveaway is that when you pose the question, so who's in control of this? If the answer comes back, well, it's all a bit complicated. You know, there's trouble ahead. And if you're listening to this and the whole transport thing has been resolved, I promise you there will be problems to come when the answer to the question, who is responsible for what, is, oh, well, it's all a bit complicated. And um, anyway, I hope you're getting around one way or another. And now, let's get on to your questions. Um, and it's steverick14 at iCloud.com uh, if you want to put any questions or points to me in the coming days. So if you are out running at the moment, you can go back 30 minutes in. There's the address, steverick14 at iCloud.com. No need to stop your run to ride it down or if you're putting the bread in the oven, you know, can carry on doing it while listening and uh, go back to there for the address if you want to make any uh, points. So let's go to your questions. Alison O'Grady has written, uh, I love the podcast. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Alison. I'd like to hear your thoughts on why the BBC seems to fish from such a narrow pool of crackpot charlatans, and masters of deception uh, when they choose panellists and pundits. Uh, yet again, Claire Fox is given a platform on Friday's Question Time. I went to North London Poly in the 1980s, as she did, and recorded her as a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party, orchestrating strikes, sit-ins and general intolerable bullying of other students. Uh, since then, she and her uh, RCP sect have uh, covered up war crimes, justified IRA uh, activities, etc., etc., 
Um, why on earth would it uh, be beyond the pale for the BBC in terms of beliefs and past actions? And why on earth can the BBC not find alternative, informed, principled and honest panellists? Well, Alison, um, I'm going to... Um, uh, probably alienate you forever by saying I used to review the papers uh, uh, on Sky with uh, Claire Fox and got to know well. So I, I like her. And, um, uh, but we disagreed a lot on uh, politics. But we always uh, she was always very uh, friendly and, uh, to me. Um, but your wider point is an important one. Um, and uh, it is the narrow pool. Uh, you know, the, the program I cannot bear is uh, BBC One's Question Time. It used to be so, so good when it first started out, you know. Um, but uh, they then decided to have five panellists. So each panellist gets about three minutes in the totality of the program because the audience is encouraged to join in and shout at the panel and all the rest of it. Um, and then the other thing that happens is people are chosen to shock and provoke and to have a row with other panellists. And then the other thing is um, there is a sort of herd mentality at the BBC. And I've known know quite well some of the people who produced any questions and one to others. And what they do is they watch all the other BBC programmes, see what panellists they're using, and they know it's safe for them to use them as well. And there is more widely a terrible fear of the uh, right in the BBC. You know, the, uh, the, they all have quite a good time and quiet lives at the BBC, but if they're attacked by the Daily Mail or uh, some of these pundits uh, on Twitter... Uh, their quiet life ceases and they're in trouble. And so they, uh, the first instinct is to make sure they get people um, who please that kind of wing to the point where some panels are imbalanced. Um, and I remember one any questions. And even though the producer was a friend of mine, I had to tweet about it. It was so, so I think Claire was on it that week, uh, Alison, along with I think there were three Brexiteers, you know, all on the right, one Lib Dem or something. It was completely imbalanced. Um, and uh, uh, but but those are the kind of reasons why it is from that narrow uh, pool. Um, but, you know, um, I know Claire Fox agonised about taking the peerage. I, I, you know, go into politics and do it. And the path, Alison, is certainly an interesting one um, that uh, she she took. Um, but you are right about the general uh, idea. You know, if you're on the right and shock, you're on a look at Frosty, Lord Frosty Frost. He's everywhere. Um, he, he, he's shallow and stupid, but everywhere. Um, although I think he's quite scared of some BBC interviewers. He tends to just choose interviewers who um, adore him for his hard Brexit. Um, thank you, Alison. I hope you don't, you know, go off in protest that I I, I used to know and work with her, Claire Fox. Anyway, um, uh, but in that capacity on the Sky newspapers, late at night, surreal in um, Ostley totally deserted except for us two and a presenter and a producer um, until kind of half past 12 or something. Anyway, thank you um, for the question. So over now to uh, Ashley 
Amos, who um, says, oh, I listened to your podcast when driving back from my job in South Wales. I work in what was Michael Foote's constituency. Ah, and apparently he is commemorated in the Weatherspoons in Tredegar. I hope he's commemorated more than that, uh, Ashley. Um, he, he, yeah, I've, I've been thinking a lot about Michael Foote recently. I'm rereading a book he wrote after the nightmare for him of the 1983 election. And um, God, he wrote so well and with such a range of references. And, of course, he was slaughtered, you know, absolute slaughtered in that election. Anyway, uh, that's not what Ashley is writing about. It's about the de- what he calls the developing crisis of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Do you suppose there's a hidden motive for ditching the protocol connected to Northern Ireland's unique position of being part of the UK whilst maintaining access to the EU single market? Some reports suggest that the economy in Northern Ireland is improving. It, it, it is, actually. Uh, only Northern Ireland and London are recording uh, economic growth, and we know why Northern Ireland is. It's got access to the single market that uh, the, this current contorted madness has deprived the rest of the country of. Um, and what if Northern Ireland, for so long an economic basket case, were to prosper and outform Britain because of its unique position in the Brexit agreement? Is Boris Johnson trying to avoid this huge potential reckoning for Brexit by torpedoing the protocol before it can work for Northern Ireland? Um, it's a good theory. And I think it is awkward for them uh, that <laughs> Northern Ireland is doing well because of its access to the single market. Um, but I think that the problem they were always going to have with the protocol with the unionists who were uh, fooled into thinking you could have a border but without any checks and that Northern Ireland wouldn't be placed into a different position. Um, and uh, Boris Johnson too, I think, is taken aback by the consequences of his own deal, only he doesn't relate it to what he's done. He blames the EU. Um, so that's why we're in the madness. But it is interesting, and they find it hard to acknowledge um, that actually economic activity in Northern Ireland is better than most of England. Uh, thank you, Ashley. Gillian uh, Oliver writes, I've heard somewhere this week, re the train strikes, that Margaret Thatcher settled every strike until she got to one she judged she could win, the miners' strike, uh, of course, in the uh, mid-80s. Is this true, and has it passed into folklore that Thatcher faced down every strike, and this is therefore a laudable attitude? If so, could this account for the minister's rather macho high-handedness in this case? Now, that is a really good question, because... Um, it not interesting how the past is mythologized? I've mentioned British Rail and uh, Christian Walmart's account of what really happened. Um, but this is another example because the answer, Gillian, to the question is yes. She was very pragmatic. So, for example, in 1979 when she came in um, uh, and began at first pursuing a kind of really brutal, pure monetarism, she diluted it quite quickly because it was having uh, dire consequences, that word again. But uh, she inherited uh, pay reviews for quite a lot of public sector workers, which uh, gave them high um, pay awards, and she uh, signed them all off. 
She didn't want to take them on at a period when she knew she was going to be weak because of the economic medicine, as she saw it, that she was um, implementing. Um, so she was pragmatic. And uh, in the first kind of dispute she had with the miners, she gave in uh, because coal stocks were low. And the government deliberately built up coal stocks so they were in a strong enough position uh, to uh, see off a strike without there being disruptive power cuts and all the other things that happened in the 70s. So that is – she was pragmatic. Now, the interesting thing with the government in this current situation is um, this is a wobbly government. Uh, and if there are strikes, not just in the uh, railways, but in parts of the public sector, and by the way, although uh, ministers pretend the railways are a sort of privately run enterprises, we've already discussed, they're not because we all contribute money to it and we all need it as a public service. Um, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see how thought through the government's position is, you know, now the kind of Linton Crosby wing in number 10, I call it Labour strikes, Labour strikes. That's my Australian impersonation because Linton Crosby is Australian. Um, but whether that is sustainable if others um, strike and cause more disruption and there is this so-called summer of discontent, I wonder how strong they will be. And as I say, the Thatcher government was only strong in that minor strike because they had the coal stocks to cope. What is the equivalent to a surplus of coal in this current potential summer of discontent for this very wobbly prime minister and government? Uh, so I think it's a really interesting point. Um, Okay, over to Paul Cooper. Now, Paul, Paul, I think, is an electoral reform skeptic because he says uh, the big, there's a bigger issue. When in power, ministers now give themselves far too much power to make decisions and personal ideology is unchecked. The electorate put them in power and the unwritten constitution doesn't tie their hands. We just don't they, we just hope they don't go rogue. Um, now, he poses the question of whether more important than electoral reform uh, is a set of structures. This is the sort of Peter Hennessy point, you know, the constitutional historian who says that Britain has depended on the good chap version of government where people uh, adhere to a kind of moral code without a written constitution and without formalized checks and balances. Um, and it's clearly not working with Boris Johnson, who, who cannot bear scrutiny or checks of any kind and is just sort of ripping them apart or ignoring them. Um, so, yeah, well, Paul, it doesn't necessarily rule out electoral reform, and I'm still psyching myself up for the electoral reform special. Um, but it does raise the question of whether there have to be formalized checks on a prime minister. But it is really difficult because in the end, uh, it is the elected politicians who are accountable. Uh, the Tory party a couple of weeks ago could have got rid of Boris Johnson, but they chose not to. Um, we as voters could. Um, voters in by-elections on Thursday uh, could send two fingers up to him if they choose to. Um, 
if we put in a provision for a load of unelected advisors to actually tell an elected prime minister precisely how he or she can act, um, that too, I think, raises complicated questions about accountability and democracy. But you're right, Paul, this is as big as electoral reform in terms of conduct and competence of government. Uh, oh, yeah. Now, Stuart Grant has written again, by the way, Stuart, uh, who, who presented the Union Jacks uh, socks as a tribute to Lord Frosty Frost to me at King's Place and a bottle of wine. So if Stuart ever writes, I automatically pick him out. Um, now, I know this is ethically contentious and my ethics advisor will not approve, but that's how you guarantee to be read out on air. Give me Union Jack socks and wine and stuff. And anyway, Stuart says, uh, at King's Place, I was in the majority who predicted that Boris Johnson would survive until the Conservative Party conference. But I think he'll be entering very choppy waters after that. This is interesting because at King's Place Live, if you saw it live or on the stream, we didn't go beyond the party conference in our assessment of Johnson's position. Uh, so Stuart says, you can just imagine that after likely difficult defeats in the by-elections and a summer of discontent, with we've been talking about the strike stuff, the conference, the party conference, will be a frenzy of plotting. If we take it that the cabinet will remain loyal, it seems to me that the biggest clear and present danger to the PM is now the outcome of the Privileges Committee, likely to report in the autumn. If they find the PM to be in contempt, my understanding is that the House will need to vote to ratify that decision. Yep, you're right on that. And we know already that the Prime Minister has lost his majority among MPs in the House. If the Commons votes in favour of any sanction and Johnson still won't resign, the argument for the 1922 committee to change its rules to allow a second confidence vote will be irresistible. Um, and Stuart says we're in for a high, a Westminster high drama this autumn and winter popcorn at the ready. Yeah, I get the popcorn out um, or a glass of wine listening to the podcast or in some cases whiskey um, because we're in for some epic dramas. That is a scenario. See, I think um, Boris Johnson, even if he's found to have misled the House of Commons, and that is an if, we don't know how this committee is going to play it. Um, he, he won't volunteer to resign. I think he has decided in himself that he's got a mandate from that December 2019 election, and that's it. Uh, December 2019, big majority, uh, personal mandate. I'm Churchill. He, he had setbacks. Uh, keep going. You know, the great man theory of uh, history. Um, and so that might be a way that they get him out. Uh, they vote on the, the the House votes for this um, and then they change the rules because enough is enough. If he says, look, it's in the interest of the country that I carry on. Uh, it is interesting, in fairness, Johnson, every prime minister concludes that it's in the interest of the country that they carry on. Blair, after the Iraq war, look, you know, it's not about me, right? It's in, in the interest of the country that we get these reforms through. Um, anyway, uh, thank you for that. Uh, uh, and now uh, someone else who was at King's Place, the Reverend Canon Paul Arbuthnot from um, 
the Diocese of Cork, Cloyne and Ross. Uh, we are rely on Paul for many insights from um, Ireland about what's going on. Anyway, he's been saying, and this is a really an important dimension to what's going on with this government, uh, the British government. I've been observing the aftershocks of the European Court of Human Rights ruling on the Rwanda flights. We now have the Prime Minister hinting that a withdrawal from the European Convention on Human Rights might be an option. This has profound and serious implications for Northern Ireland. The Belfast Good Friday Agreement is peppered with references to the ECHR to the point where the agreement is unworkable without it. So, let's game out the consequences. The UK withdrawal from the European Court of Human, Convention of Human Rights is pointed out to them that this torpedoes the Belfast Good Friday Agreement as a compromise, if that word exists in their lexicon. They keep Northern Ireland in the ECHR, but withdraw the rest of the UK from it. If you add the protocol into this mix, uh, this places Northern Ireland into a bizarre netherworld of being neither fully in the EU or in the UK. As Northern Ireland drifts off piece by piece, there's a good chance of loyalist violence. These are worrying times back in my home. I don't think that I've ever come across a government of any shade who has been so reckless with the powder keg that's Northern Ireland. Yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, as Paul ends with one word, consequences. And Boris Johnson doesn't dare think through consequences. And Northern Ireland is the most vivid and explosive example of it. Uh, thank you, as ever, Paul, uh, for that. Uh, John Richardson has a wider point. Am I naive to assume that no grand plan exists uh, in terms of the economy or wider uh, policy program, and that the Labour, the Tories, and the SNP will all be running a "We're Not Them" campaign, supported by manifestos produced by focus group analysts, um, and the wish list, as he puts it. Although this is another word, Paul, that needs wider definition: neoliberal ideologues. Yours more in sorrow than in anger. Um, I'll come to that in a minute. But Paul adds, you know, the our cooperative of many skilled people. Uh, John adds another one. For collective members looking for a therapeutic activity to ease them through the current doldrums, but who are unable to engage in the culinary and baking arts, tiring physical activity, or the in-depth study of men's hosiery or other ephemera, may I suggest cartooning? You make our current cooperative like sound like something in Siberia, uh, John. You know, we are, it's, we, we, we are in pursuit of pleasures, and you make it sound so harsh and kind of Soviet and human. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, now he gives me, an, he, he sent me an example of his latest cartoon illustrating Lord Geitz to me. It's brilliant. Uh, so you've got that job of our cartoonist and maybe others of us should um, uh, give it a go. In terms of your wider uh, point, there is there is kind of lack of big ideas. We've explored it many times in relation to the government uh, and the Labour Party at the moment. Um, and there are differing reasons for that. Uh, the SNP is interesting because, of course, it's got a big idea, independent Scotland. But how it gets there and with what da -da -da consequences have still to be explored and in pursuing that big idea, um, it has, in a way... 
avoided the need to come up with big ideas on economic policy, the provision of public services, uh, and, and so on. Uh, so you're you're onto something on that point. As I say, I, this you you send me a diff- definition of neoliberalism. Um, I'm I'm wary of the whole lot. Center ground. I don't agree with. As a no, I don't agree with. I just don't know what it means. These terms are uh, need more precision. But thank you very much, and for sending me an example of your cartoon, John. A couple more. God, we've been going off some time. A couple more, just very quickly. Scott Creswell wonders about uh, Keir Starmer uh, joking that uh, Johnson was a conservative Corbyn at PMQs and saying uh, that was not meant as a compliment. Uh, Scott, who describes himself as a Blairite Brownite, uh, thinks this was misjudged. So do I. Uh, Keir Starmer needs, instead of this uh, clunky a kind of linear thought of Corbyn was a problem, I must disown him, uh, falls into the trap of people saying, well, you know, he was saying in December 2019 he should be prime minister. And so you need a uh, more supple approach to the immediate past uh, uh, than this one. And it's very interesting because uh, – he, you know, his team say, oh, yeah, the lobby like it when you attack Corbyn and stuff, and they kind of attack him in briefings. And uh, But this time, uh, I heard a lot of um, commentators or uh, lobby correspondents in conversations over coffee saying, well, why is he doing that when he was in the shadow cabinet for that time? There's a danger of falling into traps when you think you're escaping from Trump traps. And finally, from Oliver Turner. Hi, Sam. I'm a new listener to your excellent podcast. Uh, welcome along, Oliver. As I say, it's a, you know, it's a cooperative as well as a, a podcast. Um, so you'll have to tell us your skills. You know, we've got bed breaker, bed breakers, bed, bread makers, um, and cartoonists and uh, runners and, you know, writers. Of, yeah, we got the whole lot. Um, anyway, uh, for a bit of fun, I wonder if you would war game the following scenario. And you're right, Oliver, we do have fun. This is not hard work. This is all pleasure for us a lot. Um, it's the morning after the 2024 general election and the Conservative Party have lost a significant number of seats, but they've still scraped home with a majority of about 10. Boris Johnson has lost his seat. He's now an ex-MP. What happens next? Is there any way Johnson could still cling on as prime minister? Well, it's, uh, you know, this, this is, as Oliver said, it's just a bit of fun. Although that is one possible scenario, that the Tories just win with a tiny overall majority and Boris Johnson loses his seat. I think he cannot continue as prime minister then, although knowing him, he'll try. Uh, we won. We won. Uh, good victory. Good victory. Uh, one is enough. Uh, we got 10. And I will, you, you know, and he'll. Um, but you have to be in the House of Commons to be a prime minister. Um, but in the current mad world of British politics, it's not possible, impossible that that is the outcome uh, because it would be a big swing against the Conservatives given the huge majority they got in December 2019. And in such a swing, he becomes vulnerable in his seat. Um, and so they could just win and he could just lose his seat. Although, yeah, of of the many kind of scenarios, well, who knows? I mean, that's probably as likely as any of them, frankly, uh, in this mad world. As, as Stuart said, get the popcorn out because it's going to get 
madder and crazier. We got the by-elections at the end of this week and much more. And as I say, you know, when you listen to this, you could be on a train, waiting for a train, um, blaming operating companies, network rail, the government, the Labour Party. Oh, God, you know, uh, we've got to have a modern transport system at some point in our lives. Uh, yeah, I was kind of... I was around, I was born in the 60s, you know, beaching, all those bloody cuts. Anyway, look, have a great week. And um, oh, please do leave a, a review if you can, because it means people get access to it in ways I don't understand. And yeah, uh, those tickets, Edinburgh Festival, not far away now. It's going to be great. So if you can get to those shows, it will be fantastic to see you there. And in the meantime, let's all get together next week to make sense of it all. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.